between the NFL, college ball, and the World Series, there's All no shortage of games to watch. With thousands of lines available on your favorite sports and events, you can turn your student day into payday with my bookie. If you're the type of guy who likes to back the big favorites, consider putting a couple in a parlay for a much bigger payout. Not only do parlays make meaningless games exciting, but more importantly, they give you a chance to turn ordinary bets into a real money maker. And don't forget about the underdogs. They have a ton of value, too. The thing about the NFL is that underdogs are never really dogs on Sunday. Every team truly has a chance to win. And you do, too. Game spreads, championship futures, and player props that it's never too late to get in on the action and start Network and knowledge broadcaster for cash in your Use our promo I'm good, code man. Thanks so much for having me. To claim a deposit yeah, match, I mean, dollar this is for dollar, season, all the way up before the thousand bucks. Like, the bonus is designed to give you a little help and like a head start on your five games. That's really a lot of stuff to talk about for you to claim your bonus when you make your deposit. Look, the play on the field has been up and down, I think, to say the least. Presidential process, all the major sports, and more. Sign up today and begin your winning season exclusively at my bookie. Whole news with the Saints maybe moving to Tiger Stadium in the future. We're going to definitely get all into that. But first, I do want to talk about real quick because Brendan just put out, it was a producer in the documentary Dancing Bulldogs, which was the story about the Gardner-Webb University college basketball team going to the NCAA tournament for the first time. And it's my first time interviewing someone who produced a documentary, let alone someone that produced a documentary in a pandemic. So, Brendan, what was that all about? And definitely want to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of the credit goes to our director, uh, writer, composer, uh, just a guy who wore a ton of different hats for the piece, uh, Christian Jessup. Um, His reasoning for doing it was seeing the last dancer at the very beginning of the pandemic saying, you know what, what if we did just a five, ten minute piece on Gardner Wedge trip to the tournament for the first time with him, uh, myself, uh, Thomas Manning, Eli Harden, everybody who worked on this thing, all being alums of the school, we said, okay. Um, And it was supposed to only be like a 10-minute tribute, and then the ball started rolling a little bit. They were able to get in touch with uh, head coach Tim Kraft, which was super easy because we all have relationships with Tim. And he was able to provide – uh, phone numbers and info for some of his former guys, and then we just started the interview process. But to your point, during a pandemic, and especially with some of these guys playing basketball now overseas, it's not like you were able to sit and have a nice setup and, and bring guys in 1v1 um, for interviews. So we did an entire documentary through Zoom, essentially, um, the four of us, uh, the writers and producers, director, we never met face-to-face throughout the process. Um, it's pretty crazy to say we did a f- almost a feature-length film. It was about an hour and 20 minutes, if you include the credits. We did that start to finish in four months, completely over Zoom, never had face-to-face interaction with each other. Um And I'm just really proud of the product we were able to put out because we all hear about Cinderella runs. We all hear about Stephen Curry and his run with Davidson. Uh, Loyola Chicago in the tournament a few years ago. Uh, 
UMBC the first 16 to knock off a number one, but we never hear about the stories of a team going and being a 16 seed for the very first time. Mid-majors, for some mid-major schools, they never get that experience. Uh, so we really wanted to dive into that. What's the story and how much does it mean for a small knit community to go to the dance for the first time? And especially this Gardner-Webb team that was the number four seed going into the conference tournament. They win road games to, to punch a ticket. And then just one year after UMBC pulled it off against Virginia, Gardner-Webb leads Virginia at the half, 36-30 to 30 in that game. And it looked like there was a potential for 16 to beat one for the second straight year. So it was really cool to be able to do that, especially as an alumni of the university, someone who's still associated with the university. I broadcast a lot of games down in Boiling Springs. So uh, it, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. But to, to think that we could do that uh, during a pandemic was, uh, was something different for me. I've never produced anything. I've never been a part of something like that. Um, I do have a production company, Bottom of the Mug Productions, but that was more for podcasting and like what we're doing right now. Uh, but to be able to take that and throw it into a film, um, that was really cool. And thank you for definitely going over this. And I'm definitely going to leave the link in the description below. Definitely, guys, check that out. I think it's a really interesting story, a story that, as you said, you don't hear every day about those mid-major schools, and it's, it's definitely something that I can relate to as going to kind of a smaller school and kind of understanding the close-knit community of certain college campuses around the U.S. So definitely, guys, check that out. But now I do want to move in to some Saints news and some Saints talk here during the bye week, and I think the whole talk here in this bye week was about how the Saints were threatening to move from the Superdome to Tiger Stadium in Death Valley so they can have fans. And to me, it was definitely extremely interesting. It seems like just definitely like a call out to Mayor Cantrell of New Orleans for not allowing them to ha have fans. So, Brendan, I definitely want to have your thoughts on this situation. What do you think the outcome will be? And just kind of your overall opinion. You know, I think, I think it was interesting when the news first broke. Um, especially because you could tell those games in the Superdome that if there was a crowd, even if it was a limited Superdome crowd, it probably would have made a difference in some of those games. Specifically, you want to look Monday night against the Chargers and a rookie quarterback. R rookie quarterbacks are having the easiest season in terms of dealing with crowd noise because there is none. You know, I couldn't imagine a guy like um, – Herbert having to go and play in Arrowhead, in at Lambeau Field, inside the Superdome, you know, and, and deal with that as a rookie, as someone who also was not supposed to be the starting quarterback at the beginning of the season. So I think the Saints recognize that. They also recognize that Baton Rouge has been able to have some crowds, even though LSU was not nearly as good as they were last year. I think a lot of people expected it, but maybe not to this degree. Um, so I think what the Saints were able to do in this process was simply take the leverage, right? They have all the leverage here and, and pushing New Orleans' government to make a decision because they can say, all right, not only are you going to lose the team uh, to play at Tiger Stadium for the first time in, what, 15, 16 years, but that's going to take revenue away as COVID – 19 continues to, to allow things to open up again a little bit because once this is all over, if New Orleans 
and the Saints are playing in the Superdome or in Tiger Stadium up in Baton Rouge, you're not just affecting football, you're affecting the local economies without getting too political on a football podcast, yeah. but that's a big deal. Right, that's a big deal how much money comes into your city, especially uh, with how hard New Orleans was hit by the pandemic. So here are the Saints going, we have the leverage, we're going to go if you don't. And I think the initial report right now is that at least for this week against Carolina, it's expected to stay uh, in the Superdome mm. with, without fans. But seeing as more and more teams are allowing fans of limited capacities, uh, I, I think that New Orleans and that city, they're going to have to make a decision. Uh, and I think this is kind of the last week to mull it out and, and negotiate whatever you have to negotiate because from what I understand is that LSU is is good to go. They're ready to host those games. Um, that's going to bring a lot of money to Baton Rouge, a lot of money to that university as well, which is always a positive thing when you can put some extra money into your athletic you know, pockets at any school. So I'd say if, if the mayor doesn't make a decision or doesn't allow the gates to open to fans for the Saints' next home game, not this week against the Panthers, I wouldn't be surprised at all for the Saints to make the hour and some change trip up to Baton Rouge and play games there because you know the Houdat Nation, they're going to follow. They're going to drive an hour. They have some of the best attendances in Atlanta and in Carolina. If they're going to make that trip, they're going to make an hour trip up to Baton Rouge. For me, at least, you kind of stole the word right from me, leverage. That is the biggest thing in this situation because before that, the Saints really didn't have leverage. They were basically on the New Orleans government and Mayor Contrell's schedule. It was basically whatever she said. And then when you have the Saints saying, well, we could just play in Baton Rouge. It's only an hour away, and we could have 20% fans or whatever it was. It's now starting to force some hands here, and especially when it comes to, as you were saying, about revenue and that stuff, it starts to get dicey if she's going to make a decision to now allow fans. I think, which is kind of interesting, I don't know if it's going to be for this week, but in the future, it seems like they're starting to negotiate on having maybe not 20% fans or 20,000 fans, but having something like 5,000 and just keep moving up as, let's say, let's say 5,000 works. Okay, then we move it up to 10,000, and I guess 10,000 works. We move it up to 20000 but then the Saints were like, operating costs, do we make enough money to really open up the Superdome if we're only allowing 5,000 people in, which to me was very, very interesting, but at least maybe that opened up the negotiating table because I don't know if the Saints would like to play in Baton Rouge. I don't think that they're like, oh, let's go play there, but I feel like if they have to, they'd probably rather have fans than not to have fans, make some extra money, and also, as you were saying, I feel like, for Herbert, I feel like if the Saints had crowd noise, it would have been a different game. Even that game with Aaron Rodgers, he was drawing the Saints off sides in a game in the Superdome. I feel like even if it was a limited crowd, you definitely wouldn't have saw that. So, again, I feel like I understand where the Saints are coming from. I definitely understand where the city's coming from because, look, they're just in the best interest of their people and try to protect um, really their city here from COVID-19 because if there is an outbreak in the Superdome, it's on the city of New Orleans, not really the Saints. So to me, I thought that was really interesting. But I feel like for the best outcome, I feel like in this situation is going to be probably like little by little, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. I thought that was a really interesting idea that now at least they're starting to explore. I don't know if it's for this week, but I think in the next incoming weeks, I definitely feel like that could be interesting. 
Yeah, and like I said, you have you have teams across the country right now mm-hmm. testing it out. And if you go and you try to buy tickets to a game anywhere, tickets you have to buy in two or four. That's it. And you have to do that so there's enough social distance between seats that isn't just you, your friends, your family. Um, but allowing that, like you said, at least there is some crowd noise. At least there is some fan interaction. At least there's a sense of normalcy just a little bit because I can't imagine playing on the football field and looking up and seeing nobody there for the first time. For a lot of guys, maybe since you know high school, middle school, maybe if you went to a football uh, kind of background at high school. Uh, and, and just with John Hendricks, our beat writer, and, and doing our pregame shows uh, on Monday, Sunday, you know, whatever day the Saints are playing, uh, the games he's done in the Superdome and off camera just showing us the emptiness of it, it it's bizarre. It, it's super weird for everybody. So I think for the Saints, and as I mentioned before, just the home field advantage that they have, if they can even just get a small sense of that back, um, it's a benefit for them. So... Like I said, and you said, it's it's in the mayor of New Orleans' hands now. Uh, and you have to think about safety. You have to think about revenue. I don't want to be in that position to make a decision, and that's why I'm not. Uh, it's a difficult decision because you're thinking about money, revenue, betterment of your city in terms of kind of getting out of the COVID um, era, for lack of a better term. But, two, you're also sitting there going, it hit us bad. Uh, it hit a lot of parts of the, the country really bad. Do we really want to risk having another outbreak in the city? So I understand both sides of it, but if I had to go on a gut feeling, I'm going to say the city of New Orleans says, no, we're not going to let fans in, and the Saints do play a couple games in Baton Rouge before they eventually return to the Superdome. Man, that would be really interesting <laughs> just to see this thing in Death Valley. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely going to be something to get used to, but, hey, in this COVID year, 2020, I guess anything is possible. And just before we go over to our bi-week evaluation, I just want to have one more kind of quick little news headline about the Panthers actually having a COVID-19 or a positive COVID-19 test here this week. They are going to be playing the Saints. And I I just want to touch upon it real quickly now just because, again, um, this may affect the game on Sunday. I think if it becomes a problem. We're probably going to talk about it more in our next episode when we really dive into that preview. But again, really, I think across the whole NFL, Brendan, I just want to see your opinion. Do you think that this really whole season is sustainable with basically you're seeing a COVID test here, a COVID test there, positives over across the league? Do you feel like eventually it will catch up and again, there'll be some scheduling night nightmares and conflicts, or do you feel like it's going to eventually work itself out and the NFL is going to be fine? Man, we already saw scheduling nightmares. I think it was, what, seven teams that had to make changes to their schedule because of the Tennessee Titans outbreak. I think it is sustainable. However, I think the NFL is not going to be able to go through those scheduling nightmares again. So you're knocking on wood and you're hoping that you're not going to be in another situation like Tennessee was where you had 20 members of staff and, and players that tested positive for the virus, right? You're hoping that number's more like two or four, if if it even gets to that point. Mm-hmm. But if there is another outbreak to that extent, I think the NFL's really got to consider, do we just make them forfeit the game? Because there's not going to be enough room to sit here and go, okay, well, if we move this team to this mm-hmm. week and, and we move that team to this week and then they play each other this week. Uh, honestly, 
when the Tennessee news broke, the first thing I thought of is the NFL had so much time to figure this out and have a plan B, which is super simple. It sounds really easy. Even if that was going, you know what, guys, let's put an extra two-week gap between the end of the regular season and the first wild card game to where we can move games to those essentially open weeks if we have to. And the NFL didn't do that. The NFL really didn't have a plan. Um, I do think it's sustainable. I think the NFL, outside of that one incident, has done a pretty good job, uh, even with the Cam Newton situation when he tested positive and they just moved the game to Monday. Um, that's a doable thing. We had the ultra-rare Tuesday night game because of COVID. That's fine, as long as we're not messing up schedules down the road. And I know fantasy football owners, it's been a headache. And I'm super glad that I don't have to deal with that uh, that competitively because it's ridiculous for people trying to figure out how the scoring is going to work or is this going to count towards this week or that week. And I know a lot of different organizations put out statements about it, but it's, it's crazy. Um, I, when it comes to the Panthers this week, the last thing I heard before we recorded this podcast on – What's today? Monday. Mm-hmm. On Monday, the uh, around 5:30. The last thing that I heard, it was a unconfirmed positive test. So they're going through the retesting process. And Saints fans, you're familiar with that, mm-hmm. with the scare with Michael Burton just a few weeks ago. That it takes hours for those retests to come back. So it could be a false positive. It could very well be a, a true positive case. And if that's the case, it is going to affect if the Saints play on Sunday or not. As of right now. The Panthers have closed their facility for Monday and Tuesday, holding all their meetings virtually through Zoom, and that works fine for the Panthers because they're not practicing in pads until Wednesday, which is when they expect to come back. It's just something we're going to have to monitor, um, and I think teams across the league have to monitor. And I think every week we're hearing something different, and we're hearing something different, or another guy tests positive, or even if you want to go to college football, Nick Saban had that crazy false positive just before this big game um, against the University of Georgia. So every week it's it, something new is brought up. Every week there's something different. But I can see the NFL getting through the season. Um Let's not forget, before the season started, there was a proposal and there wasn't a lot of traction on it, but I still think it needs to be brought up and thought about. Sean Payton proposed, once the playoffs began, bubbling the playoff teams in Tampa Bay um, and playing essentially all those games at, at Raymond James Stadium or, um, you know, even if you have to to drive a little bit and go to Jacksonville or Miami. But being able to bubble these guys – the best way possible once we got to the playoffs. If COVID is still an issue once we get to January, to the extent that it is now, I could see the NFL looking into something like that. Um, And then it becomes harder for for everybody, um, especially mentally. I don't think we talk about that enough. Uh, We talked about the NBA and the bubble and some of those guys that opened up. But COVID and sports and what it does to these guys mentally, especially if you have to bubble or if there is a COVID case. And Michael Burton, he, he talked about it just enough there is a mental strain on it going, I did this. Like, I could be the person that infects somebody, gets them sick, gets somebody sick. And it's just all these different things going through your head. So um, crossing fingers that nothing happens for the Saints. 
But we do have to think about that moving forward, how these guys are going to be affected uh, both in their physical health and mental health as we go out through the rest of the season. And hopefully the NFL steps up and does something um, for their health in, in those terms as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I feel like this case with the Panthers, it did happen very early in the week, which I think is big because let's just say it does get a little bigger and you do have end up having a few players. You could always move that game back to Tuesday, and now that's more than a week away. Like, if you had to move the game back to Tuesday, that is now eight days away from when we're recording this podcast. So, again, a lot of flexibility. It's definitely something to look at, but I think right now the game I, I think is going to be played this week, and especially with the Saints already having their bye, it's going to get interesting because if this actually had to get pushed to another week, that would – I don't know if the NFL can actually do that. So that's all going to be very interesting to look at and monitor as the week goes on. But the Saints did just have their bye week, and I want to get into kind of evaluating the Saints in these first five games. A lot of ups, a lot of downs, some good surprises, some just very ugly play early on in this season. So we're going to move into this bi-week evaluation. We're going to do two ups and one down. But before we get into it, we are going to take a quick break. You are listening to the Who Dat Discussion Podcast. Between the NFL, college ball, and the World Series, there's no shortage of games to watch. With thousands of lines available on your favorite sports and events, you could turn your game day into payday with my bookie. If you're the type of guy who likes to back the big favorites, consider putting a couple in a parlay for a much bigger payout. Not only do parlays make meaningless games exciting, but more importantly, they give you a chance to turn ordinary bets into a real money maker. And don't forget about the underdogs. They have a ton of value too. The thing about the NFL is that underdogs are never really dogs on Sunday. Every team truly has a chance to win. And you do too. Game spreads, championship futures, and player prop bets, it's never too late to get in on the action and start turning your sports knowledge into actual cash in your wallet. Sign up at MyBookie and when you do, use our promo code OVERTIME to claim a deposit match dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand bucks. It's a bonus designed to give you a little help and a head start on your winning season. That's promo code OVERTIME for you to claim your bonus when you make your deposit. Stacked UFC cards, presidential prop bets, all the major sports, and more. Sign up today to begin your winning season exclusively at MyBookie. Welcome back into the Hootat discussion. And now we're going to get into our bi-week evaluation. We're going to do two ups and one down. I'm here alongside Brendan Boylan, writer for Saints News Network. And Brendan, two ups, one down here. We're going to start off with the offense. Do you want to start off on a positive note here with your first up? I don't know if people are going to agree with me on this one, but I think the first positive note offensively is Drew Brees has looked a little bit more like Drew Brees in the last two weeks. And I think a lot of that's just simple timing. Timing, chemistry, as silly as it sounds, just not getting the same amount of reps with the guys over the summer, um, especially when you have a guy like Emmanuel Sanders, first year in the system. Though he didn't play last week, Deontay Harris, he, he'd been worked as a receiver for really the first time in his career. We saw some glimpses of it, but it was really jet sweeps and things like that last season. But 
he was the number three receiver after Mike Thomas went down. And then, of course, Traquan Smith's had this up-and-down career, and I still have a lot of faith in Traquan Smith. He's a fantastic blocker, and guys that doubted whether he'd be on the team or not this year, that's why he made the roster. Mm-hmm. He's one of the best blocking receivers on this Saints roster. But I'd say that's my first positive up. Drew has looked a little bit more like Drew. Uh, the one pass against the Chargers for the pick, we all kind of shook our heads and said, oh, maybe maybe Drew is in his 40s. But there was also a couple passes where Drew just put it on a dime to Emmanuel Sanders or put it on a dime to Jared Cook and, and just that classic step up in the pocket. Uh, not even a pump fake. Drew does a little more of like a shoulder shoulder shimmy fake. But it was, it was just some very vintage classic Drew Brees uh, navigating that. Um, especially that two-minute drive going into the half and then getting the Saints in a position to win the game. Um, For me, that was a big deal because a lot of people were saying, well, Drew can't throw the ball, the offense doesn't look good. I mean, honestly, if you look at that Green Bay game and you break down the film, Green Bay runs a lot of quarters. Um, And my film analysis for the Saints News Network in that article, I did talk about the fact that they ran quarters, I think, on two two of three of the Saints' touchdowns in that game, and Drew had to fit it in uh, to Emmanuel Sanders um, just essentially between a linebacker and a safety just to get it into Sanders, but that was quarter coverage. So in that game, of course, Drew's got to drop it off, what, 13 times to Alvin Kamara. But against the Chargers, they, they ran a little bit more zone than I think the Saints expected. Drew is the best quarterback against zone coverage in NFL history. We saw some positives, and now we get Mike Thomas back next week. Uh, that's a big deal. No, yeah, I mean, I have been a big kind of defender of Drew Brees early this season, so I completely agree with you. I feel like the thing with Brees, people were saying, oh, he doesn't throw the ball deep, and that's going to kill the Saints. He hasn't thrown the ball deep really a lot over these last few years, and he's still been extremely successful. In those first two games of the season, I was a little worried because his completion percentage in those short areas was just shaky, wasn't hitting those throws that he usually hit. But then you saw in that Green Bay game why I thought that was a really positive game for Breeze. Like, he was able to pick apart in that short range. Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, he didn't throw it deep and whatever. That's why they lost. That was not the reason why they lost that game. And as you were they saying, gave up 30 point, they gave up 38 points. Yeah, I mean, that's when it comes down to it, Taysom Hill fumble as well. And, again, I, I talked about it a lot in that game. There were really two offensive plays where I thought you can really be like, okay, those are bad plays. One was the Taysom Hill fumble, and then the other one was a bad call by Sean Payton to do a little screen pass to Alvin Kamara, like a little shield screen. And, again, I don't like when they do those plays. But, again, that's not on Drew Brees because of play calling and also a Taysom Hill fumble. So I feel like Brees overall, he played good in that game against the Lions. I feel like he was then able to kind of break it off and have a really good game, throw the ball downfield, kind of silence the naysayers for a week. And then last week you were saying that um, the Chargers – we're playing a lot of zone, Breeze didn't expect it. And I think early in the game, he tried to fit things in downfield and they weren't working. You saw the pick was, I think, kind of something like that, where he was just trying to fit something in right into like a circle. The zone just didn't work out. But then he was like, all these guys are open, you know, five, six yards away, you know, and he was able to deacon dunk to a touchdown. And then really that second half, they were really on point, And then they started to play a little more zone. And then you saw Breeze hit the deep pass to Jared Cook at the end of the game. And I thought that was a really nice chess match with Drew Breeze to kind of really throughout that game do a lot of different things. So, again, I feel like Drew Breeze, it's not one of my ups, but I feel a lot more comfortable with his play in these last three games. 
And moving over to my first up, and again, I think this is probably the biggest positive note for the Saints this season is really the rejuvenation of Alvin Kamara because, man, I didn't think that he can really improve off that 2017-2018 level, and I think he's gotten better from that. I mean, he's just an all-around elite running back from every sphere of the game, running between the tackles, zone running, receiving. He's really been able to do it all, and just when you look at his stats, I mean, you have 676 all-purpose yards, seven touchdowns, 38 catches, a 91.6 receiving PFF grade. I mean, all that stuff is just outstanding. And at times with the Michael Thomas injury and it's be like, well, who the Saints are going to turn to? And it was Alvin Kamara. And he really turned into kind of an an offensive player of the year candidate. And that's why I'm really excited. Once Michael Thomas comes back, when Kamara's playing like this, I don't know how you're going to stop the Saints offense. I agree with you. You know, I think that a lot of broadcasters have alluded to it the last couple weeks is that Alvin Kamara could play wide receiver. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you, you just saw some of the routes that he ran, um, the fourth down grab a couple weeks ago, maybe last week. But um, he, he's just able to do things that a standard wideout should not be able to do. Obviously the circus catch against the Chargers to really uh, put the, the Saints in position to score a touchdown where Bobble, 1-2, he ended up getting three feet in bounds, which still is mind-boggling to me because even getting two in was going to be tough. He managed three. But, you know, he talked about after tearing his MCL and playing through that tear last season that he focused on a lot with his trainer, Dr. Reef, in terms of agility and strength and his knees, his ankles, his hips, uh, things maybe they didn't focus on a whole lot uh, prior to that injury. Uh, so being able to strengthen up his body, and one of the things that blew me away before the season was seeing some of those videos of Alvin working out and seeing uh, the size of his legs. And I know that sounds weird, but you could definitely mm-hmm. see he bulked up um, in his thighs and for me, that's a big deal. For a guy who is that shifty and that shaky, uh, to be able to have that strength in, in your core and in your lower body, it's only going to help you improve. It's going to make you quicker. It's going to make you faster. Uh, and that was one reason I was really high, just like a lot of people were on Alvin Kamara coming into the 2020 season. I thought he was going to be right back to his old ways, as you alluded to, um, the 2017, 2018 seasons, uh, particularly 18 where he had 20 touchdowns. But that's where I thought Alvin Kamara was going to be. But he has surpassed that. The fact that he's almost at 40 catches already this season in, in just five games um, is remarkable. Tied for first with touchdowns. I believe he's tied with Dalvin Cook, who's now injured mm-hmm. uh, for the Vikings. But Kamara has came out to play. And honestly, if it wasn't for the play of Alvin Kamara, the Saints probably aren't 3-2. and two. Um, they're probably sitting at two and three or maybe even, you know, maybe one and four. But Camaro really came to play this year. I think that's the, the obvious up. No, yeah, I mean, he's just been outstanding. And I think what you were talking about with his core and his legs, also pass blocking, he's been really good at this year as well. I mean, his game, I think, it's really elevated, which is something that I think Saints fans and really the coaches as well, I mean, really everyone around the league, I mean, I think we expected Kamara to at least get back to that level, but to surpass it, that was something that at least I wasn't expecting. 
and really the Saints needed it. As you were saying, like, maybe even this team would be 1-4 without him, especially not having Michael Thomas for four weeks. That's not going to help, and he's been really able to shoulder this load, which, again, is obviously really big for the Saints' offense. Now, with Thomas coming back, I really feel like it is sky's the limit. What's your one down here for this offense? I feel like they're starting to come on, but... Again, I feel like they definitely still have some holes. What's your just one negative part where they can definitely improve? I think the, the easiest thing would say is play calling. Uh, there's been a lot of question marks in Sean's play calling, but I'm going to take it a step further than that. And my down's going to be Taysom Hill. And I don't think it's Taysom Hill. I think it's the situations in, what they, in which they've put Taysom Hill in have not been in positions – to be successful. You know, Jared Cook goes down, right? Michael Thomas goes down. The, one of the first guys I expected to have his role increased in that offense was Taysom Hill. And what did we not see? That. We didn't see a whole lot of Taysom Hill used as a receiver where he was so successful just a season ago. He was second on the team in touchdown receptions last season. It's kind of remarkable. Let's just sit back and, and take that in for a second. A quarterback was your number two receiver in terms of touchdowns a season ago, and we just haven't seen it. Um, we've seen plenty of instances where he's lined up, you know, not under center but out of the shotgun and ran this read option. And Taysom, honestly, is not a great reader in the read option. I think nine times out of ten he's going to keep the ball. Uh, when he should obviously hand it off to Latavius Murray or Alvin Kamara. So for me, the biggest down is just the utilization of Taysom Hill through the first five weeks, and I think getting healthy is only going to help because let's not just forget, not just Michael Thomas in this offense is coming back. One guy I was really looking forward to seeing how he was going to fit in the offense, and a lot of people were, was Ty Montgomery. And Ty Montgomery got brought off of IR today. So you're going to have Montgomery in that offense as well, another kind of plug-and-play at receiver, running back, wherever type of a player. Uh, So I think that only helps Taysom Hill to have another kind of joker role guy. Uh, And then you're able to play with some things and get creative. But Taysom Hill through the first five weeks has been disappointing. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I think with Taysom Hill is that, as you were alluding to with Michael Thomas going down, and also Jared Cook going down, was I thought he was going to get used in those tight end roles in the red zone, and it just seems like they weren't using him in those situations. And the killer is, in that Vikings game, in the playoff game, that's where he was used most. He caught the touchdown, and he was obviously really, really successful in blocking and receiving. His receiving through that year, it got better and better and better. And as you said, six receiving touchdowns, which was second on the team, which, again, as you said, is just crazy within itself. But, I mean, I was... A little, it, like, at first, I was just like you, and I was like, Taysom Hill right now, it's definitely the down of the offense. And then I kind of looked into every drive that Taysom Hill was in. It was interesting. I really thought that his his plays, and as you were saying, under center, in shock, and it really just hurt the Saints offense. And it was just like, why is Sean Payton doing this? And, again, I, I was just really down on it. Like, I was like, get Taysom Hill out of that quarterback package. And I actually looked at every drive, and it turns out that it's not as big as an impact as I thought, which was, I thought, really interesting to be like, I could understand now why Sean Payton goes back to it, because he feels like, at worst, you could still bring Breeze back on the field. You still have Alvin Kamara, who's been running the ball amazing, as we were saying. Latavius Murray, who I think has been really good. So maybe it's not as bad as we're thinking, but again, 
I'm definitely questioning Sean Payton. I think this goes perfectly into my down, which is just Sean Payton's play calling as a whole. Again, I just don't understand the spots that he's putting them in, like these third and ones, third and twos. You're running these sweeps. Like, the defense knows if Taysom Hill in a third and two situation, third and three, everyone knows Taysom Hill's keeping it. And to me, I just don't understand where Sean Payton's play calling is on those types of plays. And I feel like the big thing with Taysom Hill, get him in other situations, as you were saying. Maybe you throw him in obvious pass situations and then you run the ball. Or the plays I really like with him is when he gets the option to, like, he drops back to throw the ball, and if he doesn't think anything's there, then he scrambles and makes a play out of it, which usually goes for, like, 8 to 10 yards, which I think is obviously a very positive game. So I feel like being a little more... Adventurous with Taysom Hill, using his strengths, definitely in the tight end game as well, receiving game. It's definitely going to be interesting for the Saints. I, I think what you said, though, is is a perfect perfect way to kind of wrap a bow on the Taysom Hill conversation is his game hasn't been bad. His weird read option package thing hasn't been detrimental to the Saints. However... There are much more lows this season with Taysom Hill than highs. And I think if we were to put on the tape last year and we were to watch all the Taysom Hill tape we could last year, we'd probably feel similar if he wasn't finding the end zone. Um, And that's been the problem this year. Obviously the fumble against the Packers, instances on third down against the Chargers where they run a quick screen to Taysom Hill on third and one, which didn't make sense to me. Uh, the play where Taysom did score a touchdown, marching out on the field. I'm running the game day blog for Saints News, and I look up at the TV and I go, what are you doing? Game's on the line. Minute left in the game, third and three, third and four, and you take Drew Brees off the field. You take the ball out of his hands. Like, I didn't get it. Obviously, he scored a touchdown. I know nothing. That's what Sean Payton calls plays. But... To your point, that was a play that was designed for Taysom Hill to throw the ball. It was. And Taysom looked up, saw absolutely nothing, and took off. And uh, Alvin Kamara said it in his post-game press conference to him. He said, don't be afraid to run. And he said, I don't know if Taysom heard me, but that's what he did. So I think that's the thing with Taysom is you got to put him in positions to be successful. Um, he's a cult hero. You know, let's just be honest. There is a weirdly specific following for Taysom Hill and then Taysom Hill stan accounts and fan accounts and, and all that. Taysom Hill's a cult hero. But until he starts getting back into the end zone and the Saints start winning football games more consistently, this is going to be the narrative of Taysom Hill. But winning fixes everything. And scoring just a touchdown or two here or there like he did last year, that's going to fix a lot of problems. Yeah, I feel like the splash plays. And I think Sean Payton's going to continue to go back to Jason Hill because he's like, that splash plays, they're eventually going to happen. They're going to change games. And that's why he feels like, okay, at worst, it's not going to be detrimental to the offense. And, again, we're going to be still able to score touchdowns and really at, the, at a similar clip, which I thought was really interesting, was basically the same. Even with Taysom Hill only averaging like three yards a play when he's either at shotgun or under center, and at quarterback, but even with that, they're still scoring with him and those plays in kind of the scheme and um, kind of in the mix there. So I thought that was really interesting. But 
again, like in the heat of the game, I'm just like, just like you yelling at the TV, like, what are you doing? And even on the podcast, in the recap episode, and obviously everything's still fresh that Monday after, and it's like, it just makes no sense. Like, you have Drew Brees, who's firing on all cylinders, picking apart the Chargers in that situation, like as you're saying, and then you take them out in like the most pivotal point of the game for Taysom Hill. Again, it's definitely going to be something to be interesting to watch. As you were saying, if Taysom Hill scores a few big plays, scores some touchdowns, that's going to change a lot. But again, I feel like that's something that the Saints could definitely improve on here going into the, not second half of the season, but at least after the bye week here. So what's your final up here, final positive point for the offense before we switch it over to the defense? Well, looking over the notes, you stole mine, man. Eric McCoy's been great. (laughs) But um, it kind of goes hand-in-hand with what I said about Drew. Uh, but I'll go Emmanuel Sanders and just timing and being comfortable. And I know these guys worked out in Denver together in the offseason. Of course, that's how we got the awesome story of, of Fowler signing with the Saints. And um, as a broadcaster myself, you live to find those stories and tell those stories. It makes your job so much easier, so much better, uh, and just a fun twist on the football game. So I love that story. But going to work out in Denver like twice over the summer doesn't build chemistry. Right, I'll, I'll, I'll use an example, and we'll use an analogy. Going on two dates with someone does not build chemistry. And that's, that's what Drew and, and Emmanuel did. They went on, a quote-unquote, a couple dates, and they were able to, to go out to Denver and, and pitch and catch and do all that great stuff in the offseason. But COVID really affected the way they were able to come together and, and grow chemistry in practice and, and in real reps. Right, Running a route and throwing a pass, that's, that's great, but that's not – real reps, you're not getting the closest thing to game reps that you can. So seeing Emmanuel Sanders' growth, especially over the last two weeks, right, no touchdowns the last two weeks, which is kind of crazy to go, oh, he's played so well, but he hasn't found the end zone. But he has 18 catches, over 200 yards the last two weeks, and you're starting to see him find some spots. Obviously, we talked about the zone that the Chargers ran with Drew Brees and Emmanuel did a great job of just finding an open part of the zone and, and letting Drew get it to him. A lot of those were really simple, you know, pitch and catch, and some of them were a little more difficult, and Drew made some really good throws in that game. But seeing Sanders get comfortable and seeing him start to click, he set a career high on Monday Night Football in terms of receptions. That's an up for me because if you're starting to get that kind of growth with Emmanuel Sanders, you can almost say it was a blessing in disguise to not have Michael Thomas because it forced you to figure it out a little bit quicker to where some teams, especially this year, we're going to call it the COVID year, in the COVID year, some of those guys are still not going to have chemistry with their teammates until like week 10, week 11. The Saints right now, in week six, look to have a true number one receiver in Emmanuel Sanders who's going to get bumped down to number two, and you're getting a guy who caught 149 passes last year. I don't think there's a better up than that, because to your point earlier, you get Mike Thomas back, Alvin Kamara's been playing great, now you threw the fact that Mike or, um, Emmanuel Sanders has been great, uh, Jared Cook, not not super great, but big confidence booster with a big touchdown grab last week. All these guys are starting to get healthy, and the chemistry is growing. Shoot, we, a lot of people ridiculed the Saints offense this season. And I get it because it's stagnant. There's plenty of drives where you're just shaking your head and saying, what's going on? But the Saints are top five in points per game. 
The defense has been, eh, but we'll talk about that. But they're top five in points per game without Michael Thomas for the most part. Without healthy guys and Harris and still trying to find chemistry with Traquan and Emmanuel Sanders, and you're still putting up 30 points a game. Have that chemistry round out. You insert Mike Thomas. This could be the best offense in football. I completely agree with everything you're saying. So instead of repeating it, I'll just basically lay this out here for the, the rest of the NFL Saints fans. Right now, I just feel like the Saints have an Offensive Player of the Year candidate with Alvin Kamara. You have an Offensive Player of the Year player coming back with Michael Thomas. Again, out of those two players, you only get double one of them. So whoever you double, you still have to leave one single coverage. Then even if you can cover either Mike Thomas on single coverage or Alvin Kamara on single coverage, you got to deal with Emmanuel Sanders one-on-one most of the times. you got to deal with Jared Cook over the middle, Latavius Murray running the ball down your throat. And, again, all of this, you add Ty Montgomery, as you were saying, Deontay Harris, a really great offensive line, which I'll get into, especially on the interior I really feel like sky's the limit here for this offense. I, I, I don't see how they don't finish with above 30 points a game, considering they have 30 points a game right now and no Michael Thomas, and they really can't get into a rhythm. So, again, I really feel like this team's offense is hitting its stride, and, again, I feel like that's very, very encouraging. And my up was, as you were saying before, Eric McCoy and this interior offensive line group here for the Saints because – I feel like last season and how last season ended against the Vikings, the biggest negative of coming out of that game was, man, the interior offensive line just got beat. And they got really everything handed to them by that Vikings defensive line. They were doing stunts, getting their best players. When you look at Everson Griffin, who's now with the Cowboys, but he was formerly with the Vikings. And you also add in Daniel Hunter, and they were doing stunts, getting on Andrews Pete, getting on... Larry Wofford, who now is not with the team. So they got hurt really badly. And now this year, you have Eric McCoy, you have who has gotten to me a lot better. He looks like a Pro Bowl type player here for the Saints. You have Nick Easton, who I really feel like he's taken a step up here for this Saints team. And then also, you're adding Cesar Ruiz, which, again, as you were saying, it's been a shortened offseason. And then adding to that, he hasn't been really getting consistent snaps, but I feel like every time he gets thrusted into a role, he's played very, very well. And even Andrews Pete, I feel like, again, he's had some of his, oh, Andrews Pete plays where you're just shaking your head, but he's also made some outstanding plays. And right now, I feel a lot more comfortable here with this interior group and especially going into the playoffs and big games going forward. I feel like less interior pressure is going to get to Drew Brees which is going to make this Saints offense run a lot better, especially in those big games and against teams that have great defensive lines like the Bucks, like the 49ers. And, again, I feel like that's going to be really big going forward. Yeah, and to your point, Eric McCoy's played every snap so far this season for the Saints. No sacks allowed. I think his pro football focus grade is like 73, which isn't super outstanding, but he has played very well. His highlight of the season is being the lead blocker on that crazy Alvin Kamara uh, touchdown catch and run and the fact that he actually hit um, a higher miles per hour than Kamara uh, when you go into next-gen stats. He was running faster than Kamara on that. was uh, was pretty remarkable. Uh, but to your point, they haven't had Andrews Pete. Right, he's hurt. he's been hurt. 
Nick Easton's had to move around. Remember, Nick Easton was signed by the Saints to replace Max Unger <laughs> when he retired unexpectedly. Right? So Easton's just been waiting in the wings because they went and drafted Eric McCoy, who beat him out. But here's Easton earning some of that money. Cesar Ruiz, who we said on draft day, was the most, uh, I don't want to say Swiss Army knife, but he's the most versatile offensive lineman in the draft, could play both guard spots and center. And you've seen him, as you said, had to be plugged and played in, in different spots, and he's played really well. I think the tackles have been okay. They're, I mean, they're above par. Like, don't get me wrong. Those tackles are – it's the best tackle duo in the league. But there's times where, you're like, oh, these tackles, they're not where they were last year, given Ryan Ramchek was incredible last year. No sacks allowed throughout the entire season on Ramchek. But, you know, there's been some shaky play by the tackles. There's been some pressure in Drew's face. But the interior of the line has been great. And I think that's really seen in the run game that has been so effective for New Orleans so far this season. Yeah, I feel like I was also going to bring that up because Latavius Murray, to me, this year, also Alvin Kamara, this run game, I think really every game this season besides that Chargers game and also the first game, they really couldn't get it going either. But there was that, what, four-game stretch, three-game stretch here where they ran the ball at will. Against the Packers, they were running the ball at will, and then they got behind, so they had to then kind of transfer their game plan to um, pass more. I thought that Raiders game, they were really able to run the ball really well at will, but then you got behind, had a pass as well. And then that Lions game, they were able just to just really bring it to them. You were able to run the ball consistently and then also um, just get ahead with the passing as well. So I feel like the Saints and this interior offensive group really helped that. And then when you don't have pressure in Breeze's face, that's something that is really, really big here. Um, for the Saints and this interior group. As you were saying about Eric McCoy, yep, no sacks. He also only has given up three pressures and only one penalty. Like, he's just been outstanding this season. Looks like really a Pro Bowl-type player. And for him, that second-year jump has been really, really good. And overall, I'm very, very excited to see this interior offensive line to keep um, really playing really well for this Saints offense. So, That is going to finish up our talk about the offensive evaluation. Now I want to flip it over to this defense, which has really been up and down. They've been good in a lot of areas, especially like yards allowed. They're actually on the top half of the league. But then you get into the red zone and first down efficiency and all that stuff, and they're just really at the bottom of the league, which, again, goes back to fundamentals and, again, situational football, which – Again, I thought the Saints would be really good going into this year at those types of situations, and they just haven't been. So let's just start off on a positive note. Brendan, what's a positive here? Trey Hendrickson, uh, no doubt. Completely agree. Trey Trey Hendrickson uh, has been incredible, especially in the absence of Marcus Davenport. His four-and-a-half sacks are fifth in the NFL right now. Um, But I'll expand on that as well and just say the D-line in general. I know Cam Jordan, there's, there's been a lot of where's Cam Jordan talk. Um, but you have to think about it this way, too, right? Anya Mata's missed time this year. Rankins, I, I still don't think is he, – he might be like 90% or 95%, but he's not 100%. And he's still recovering from last season as well. So Cam Jordan, your best defensive lineman, arguably one of the best defensive ends in football, is getting all of your attention. And you're seeing guys like Hendrickson, Anyamata, 
step up and make plays. Anyamata's seventh in the league in stacks at the defensive tackle spot. Rankins has came up and made some big plays. I mean, that whole that whole rotational defensive line has been so good. And let's not forget, Shy Tuttle's been a healthy scratch a lot lately. And we all were super happy with the play of Shy Tuttle last season as being an undrafted free agent. And he can't even get on the field because Malcolm Roach has been that good. Right? And Malcolm Brown's been that good. And Anyamata's been that good. And Rankins has been that good. And, and Hendrickson's been that good. And even Marcus Davenport coming back last week, I mean, he really affects how you're able to get to the quarterback. So I think the defensive line as a whole hasn't been the problem. That's my up, is the defensive line's played well. Uh, we'll talk about the back half and the back end. That's a whole different story. But that's my up, is going, wow. Even with the injuries you you faced early in the season, uh, without Cam Jordan really being Cameron Jordan in terms of the sack numbers, the defensive line's really held their own so far this season. And, you know, a lot of people forgot about Trey Hendrickson. Credit to him. You know, a third-round pick uh, in 2017, that great 2017 draft class. Nobody talks about Hendrickson, right? Everybody talks about Lattimore and Kamara and, and everything that was so good about that draft. Ryan Ramchick. And Hendrickson kind of got forgotten about, and all of a sudden he's back on your radar. Look, four and a half sacks for him. Are you expecting that going into here this season? Definitely not. And here, and he's also my up, so really he's been outstanding. And, again, I feel like with, as you were saying, Cameron Jordan, again, I, I feel like with him, a little inconsistent for him. I think he's obviously going to get better. I feel like he's just too good of a talent to not hit a groove, and you're going to see him, especially last week, had a really good week. And I think he'll continue that here going into these future weeks. But I feel like if the Saints got the Hendrickson of last year or a different Hendrickson, I don't know where this line would be right now. I think a lot of players, as you were saying, just really stepped up with Cameron Jordan. in. again, he had off-season surgery also, so I think he's still recovering maybe from injury as well. And, again, I feel like right now you have Davenport coming back. You have Jordan getting back fully healthy. You have Hendrickson really playing the best football of his career right now, which I think is really great here for the Saints. I think in the interior, you have Onyemata, you have Malcolm Brown. You also have Rankins as well, who I think last week had a really big sack to look a lot more explosive last week. So really, I feel like this whole defensive line, but especially Trey Hendrickson, has played pretty well this season. And I think especially with Davenport, I think they're only going to get better. I feel like that's the one part of this defense right now where I'm just like, I have confidence that they'll be there. They'll be there consistently against the run, against the pass. And I think that will help the back end. Again, I'm not 100% sure that this back end gets everything figured out for the Saints, but I think I'm 100% sure here that this defensive line continues to get better. And I feel like even over the last two weeks, you've seen vast improvement from this group. So I think I'm very happy about that. That is my up here for this defense. Now, probably going to turn it over to a more negative side, and I bet we both agree with this, but what's your down here for this defense here? I think, I think it's obvious <laughs> for everybody. It's the play of the secondary, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to specialize it a little bit more so, so you can talk about yours, but I think specifically it's the mental lapses. It's the penalties. It's the bad eyes. You know, Actually, the penalty numbers have gone down. 
but it's the bad eyes. It's it's the mental lapses in crucial situations. Obviously, we can pick on Patrick Robinson all you want for essentially just letting Mike Williams run right by him for 60 yards and a touchdown. But the mental lapses, the penalties, um, it's been poor. There's no easier way to say it. When you lead the league in defensive pass interference, and, and for a while there led the league, and, and I'd have to look at the numbers, but might still lead the league in terms of penalty yardage, you're not going to win a lot of football games, right? <laughs> bad teams beat themselves. And for a little bit there, the Saints were a bad team because that's all they did. They beat themselves. Uh, so I think the penalties are the biggest down. Um, and we'll talk, I'll continue to talk about that as we talk about the up, but the penalties are definitely the biggest down. Yeah, I mean, look, I feel like this defense and this defensive secondary here for the Saints, I feel like when you look at these penalties, and look, they've just been just the biggest, like, slap-in-the-face penalties where it's just like, ugh, it's just that big play at the end of the game where the quarterback throws it deep and it's just P.I., and it's like, damn. Like, we were set up to, to at least have a chance to win this game. It's happened now, tw- I think, twice in that two-game losing streak where, again, it's just back-breaking penalties. It's the, the, the necessary roughness penalties, the roughing the kicker penalty. It's just like it, – it, it's the ones where you're just – again, it's like the head-scratching penalties where, look, a bad team beats itself, and for a moment there, the Saints were a bad team, as you were saying. And I feel like, for me, and this kind of segments well into my down here for the secondary, but the worst part, I feel, for this thing secondary is there are good players just playing bad. They're not playing to what we're used to them playing. And I'm going to talk about Marshawn Lattimore, but I feel like overall, I mean, Malcolm Jenkins, I think he had a, he had a good week last week, and I think that, again, he's played pretty well in certain situations, but... He was brought in here to really stabilize everything, and I think that he's really been up and down. I feel like that's the biggest thing with when you look at him, and then you look at Marcus Williams, who to me also just hasn't played that well either, and you were expecting him to make a jump, and that really hasn't happened. You've seen him flat-footed on certain situations, and really it's kind of the same story with him, not knowing where to be, misreading plays. I feel like when you look at all that, again, it's definitely something where it's like, Damn, these guys have so much talent, and they're making these simple mistakes. I mean, I think Janoris Jenkins, who's been out the last few weeks, but I thought he was playing really well. And then in the biggest situations, you see flag, flag, flag. It's like, it's really, I mean, it's head-scratching, because that's really the only thing you can say. I mean, a defense that was really propped up to be this veteran defense, the veteran secondary, they'd be in the right places, and that's just not happened here. And moving over to my down with Marshawn Lattimore, and it's really the inconsistent play of Lattimore because even as recent as this year against Mike Evans, we've seen him ball out and have a great game. And we know what Marshawn Lattimore is capable of. I think at his top, he's a top five corner in this league. I mean, when he plays his best, when he plays motivated, he is just such a great player. But he goes up against guys like Mike Williams or whether it be like a Danny Amendola type guy where he's just giving up big plays. It's like you really can't really place a finger on it against the Raiders. It was guys like Henry Ruggs. He just, again, it's, it's something that he really is a guy that plays up to his competition but also plays down to his competition. And if he wants big money, I know a lot of cornerbacks are getting big money, but if you want to get those big top five deals, top three deals, record-breaking deals, you got to play good against everybody. That's really the fact of the matter is, and 
for this Saints team now three and two, and they can't afford really losing to any of these gimme games or games with teams with really their skill level isn't at the Saints right now. He's got to play better, and he's got to play up to his competition. He has to be motivated to play every single snap. Well, it's an issue we've seen the last few years. It's not just this year. Last year we saw it. Uh, a lot of people are asking, where's Lattimore last year? I think you hit the nail on the head. He's a guy who definitely motivates himself when he's going up against a guy. Obviously, we've seen it with Mike Evans over the years. Those guys have had some battles, and, and Lattimore's been on top of almost all of them. But when he's not going up against a big-name guy, you expect it to be an easy day at the office maybe, and it's just not. And I think he takes it a little lax. I mean, I can't speak for him, but it's something that's got to change. And it's frustrating as a Saints fan, I'm sure, for, for many to see Lattimore struggle like that. Cut him some slack a little bit. There's some plays where it's just a difficult play for a corner to make. Uh, the one that sticks out in my, my head is the drag route in the, in the red zone where it's man coverage, and he's got, to, he's got to stay with the guy. I don't care who you are. You can be the fastest corner in football. That's hard. That's hard to keep up with a guy and make, make a defensive play without having a flag thrown. But uh, for Lattimore, it's frustrating. It's, it's frustrating for the entire, the entire defense, but that's going to lead into my up. Right? It's frustrating. It's frustrating for fans. It's frustrating covering it because you look at this and you say that this team should be better than what they are. You had analysts left and right, you know, and not just not just me or the Saints news crew, but you're talking about the, the ESPNs, the NFL networks that were saying this Saints defense was going to be better than the Saints offense when the season started. Well, that just hasn't been the case. But here's my up. I said earlier, bad teams beat themselves for a little bit. The Saints were a bad team. Guess what? There's plenty of situations where you can be a bad team because you beat yourself and you turn it around. Right? For the Saints, you said it. This team is so talented. Such a talented defense. That back end. I know Marcus Williams gets a ton of slack from people, but I still think he's one of the best roaming, quote-unquote, center fielders at the safety position. He's... Because for as many times as he gives up a big play, how many times has that guy made a play to put the Saints in the situation to win the game? If you want to go all the way back to 2017 and that that play, the Marcus Williams play, if you want to say it, because I won't say it, but (laughs) if you want to call it the Marcus Williams play, let's not forget, earlier in that game, he had an interception interception. that put the Saints in a position to be on top. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's the thing with Marcus Williams. you, you got to give him some slack because he does make plays. But when it comes to mental lapses, when it comes to silly penalties, when it comes to just inconsistency, the one thing, those are all fixable problems. Every single one of them. And you said it best. You might not all fix them this bye week. You might not fix them all year. But they're fixable problems. You know what's not a fixable problem? Having a bad defense. <laughs> It's just not. And Saints fans, let, let's let's backtrack. Let's let's hit rewind a little bit and go back to fifteen. Go back to sixteen. Right? I'm on a I'm on a Zoom call with you, Andrew. I can just see your face. Yeah, we've been. If you want to go back to those teams? Well, 
And there was bright spots on those teams, right? There was. Yeah. But right after Junior Gallette left, and that's kind of just a weird point to pinpoint it, but right after Junior Gallette right. left and Brandon Browner came in and you gave Bird all that money in the free agency, on paper that team was going to be good, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they weren't. They were bad. It was a bad roster. It was a bad football team. And frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of talent on that team. Now let's fast forward back to today and go, this team is loaded with talent. You can't, like I said, you can't fix not having talent. And fortunately for the Saints this season, there is talent galore on this roster. How many times have I told you in our, in our own conversations that this is the most talented Saints team I have ever covered? Right, and I've covered the Saints since 15. This is the most talented roster, top to bottom, that I have covered for New Orleans. So you can fix the mental lapses. You can fix the, the silly penalties. You can fix the, the PIs. And that's my up. It, it's a positive. You can fix all of that. It's not like you have an awful team. You're 3-2. and two. I know a lot of people did not expect to be 3-2. and two. At worst, 4-1. and one. Right, people said, at worst, we'll lose to Green Bay. What you did, surprising loss to the Raiders. You can't panic. You cannot hit that panic button. Oh, we're 3-2. We haven't played the best football of the year. Drew Brees' arm's a noodle. Or, you know, whatever people are saying, you can't do that because this is a good football team. It is a year like no other, and everything's fixable. And injuries, along with you know things that are fixable, guys get back to health. And we talked about that. Saints are getting a plethora of guys back. And one we haven't even touched on on defense, Kiko Alonso's coming off IR, which the linebacking play hasn't been great. We know DeMario Davis, DeMario Davis, but it hasn't been great outside of that. And Alex Anzalone has been okay. He's been healthy, that's important, but he's been okay. But getting another guy, another veteran guy like Kiko Alonso, who I think is still underrated. Let's not forget, he, he was a phenomenal rookie. Just... Five years ago, six years ago, he was phenomenal. So take it with a grain of salt and go, yeah, you know, it's been tough. It's been a tough first five weeks for the defense, but they're fixable problems. Yeah, and I, I think you definitely hit it, hit the nail on the head here with this one. And I, I think with this thing's defense, and I think it's going to come down to coaching. And we've seen with these fixable problems that happened in 2017 where they got off to a bad start and they were able to fix it. They ended up by the end of that season, their defense looked really good. I mean, obviously you had the Marcus Williams play as you were talking about, but overall, I mean, they played really good. I mean, then you have 2018, same thing happens. You have a few shootouts in that game and in that year, excuse me. And then also you had a few kind of give me wins. Like people are going to say, oh, that Chargers game definitely should have lost it. But 2018, you have a game against the Browns where their field goal kicker misses, like, three field goals. You have the game against the Ravens where Justin Tucker completely shanks an extra point. Justin Tucker is also the best kicker in the league. So, like, again, that team maybe had some gifts early when the defense was working things out, but they were winning football games, and that team was a step away from the Super Bowl. Last year, again, I feel like the defense definitely hit its stride earlier, but that first game against the Texans was not good. <laughs> like, we definitely know about that. And, again, I feel like for this Saints defense, it's fixable problems, but we're going to see if the coaching can fix it. And I feel like if they can't fix it, you're going to start seeing, well, is Dennis Allen the right guy for this job? There's, you know, whoever, you know, whatever ends up happening. But, look, these problems have been fixed in the past. 
and they're easy problems to fix. I mean, as much as they're head-scratching problems, they are easy to be like, we can fix this. And once they fix it, you'll be like, oh, <laughs> this defense looks like a top-ten defense, like all of a sudden, because you even saw week one against the Bucks, They looked really good because they weren't making you know, stupid penalties and they weren't you know doing anything like blown coverages, and they looked really good. And then it feels like after that, it was just blown coverage. If it wasn't a blown coverage, it was a penalty. And if it wasn't that, it was something else. And, again, I feel like it's going to take some time. It may not get all fixed this week. But, again, I completely agree with you with that. And for my up is what I want to talk about. You said about injuries and people getting back. But, look, the Saints are 3-2 and to this point. And this depth on this defense, you've got to commend them. Because especially in that Lions game where – you talked about people, you could panic at being 3-2. and two. How about being 1-2, and two, you know? And after that game, six starters are out. And this defense, to me, rallies around each other, and it's a pretty good game. I mean, I know they gave up some garbage points at the end of the game, but overall, you had Patrick Robinson, which a lot of people are probably going to talk about his blown play last week, but really up until that point, he was playing good football. And for him, that's something that is really encouraging for the Saints to have a number three corner where you could at least trust that's not going to blow a game for you. And I think overall, you know, look, has he had some bad plays? Yes. But overall, I feel like he's been serviceable back there. P.J. Williams, I think you could say the same here. And overall, I mean, that that whole game could have been definitely one where you're like, chalk it up, bad game. You had the COVID scare as well. And, you know, this is just not our year. But, look, this depth came in there. They played a really good game, and even across the defensive line as well. You had Trey Anderson step up, Carl Granderson step up. I mean, you had guys like Malcolm Roach step up, as you were saying earlier. Like, they played well. And, again, as much as they made and they made up until this point a lot of stupid plays, they do have the talent, they have the depth to get through this, and you've seen the glimpses. And, again, I feel like it may not happen overnight, but I feel like this defense has a shot to really get going. Along with this good offense, I feel like that's definitely something that, that they can do here. Well, what did you say, right? The Saints are not just in the top half, but they're in the top ten in the league in yardage defensively. And to your point against Tampa Bay, there was some bad P.I. calls in that game. But they get erased out of your memory. Why? Marcus Williams with a big interception. Janoris Jenkins with a big interception. That's something the Saints haven't done is forced turnovers yet. They haven't. And I think that fixes a lot of problems, too. I mean, if you even want to look and talk about the, the 9 team, which I got the, the Sports Illustrated behind me from that 9 team, that wasn't a great defense. They just were opportunistic, and they, they made big plays. And obviously, you know, Tracy Porter, big plays back-to-back in the playoffs. Darren Sharper had a, had a great regular season, a couple different pick sixes for him. And I'm not saying the Saints have to have that. And personally, I'm a guy who hates comparing Saints teams to the 9 teams. They're just different. It's a different team. It's a different style of football. It's 11 years ago. But the defense does have to force some takeaways. Uh, the defense is better than what we're seeing. Um, and let's not forget, man, Drew, Drew's put that defense in bad spots. Right, the two bad picks by Drew this year against Vegas and against uh, the Chargers on Monday, both on Monday night. And what happened? Interception. They go score. Is that really on the defense? Because you know the the Raiders had first and goal from the from the two or the one, punched in touchdown. 
and against the Chargers, they go and they, they believe they scored. So yeah, th- those those up. points are on Drew for putting the defense in a bad spot, right? Mm-hmm. Just like we look at Week One and the Saints, mm-hmm. you know, the Saints reaped the benefits of the fact that Drew didn't have to do a whole lot because the defense put him in good situations to score points and even score points themselves. So I think you have to look at things like that and go, this defense isn't as horrendous as we think. They just, they've just they given up a lot of points. It's highlighted how bad they've been in terms of penalties. And once you get past that, and like you said, if you're able to just, you don't even have to fix it. You know, you, you could duct tape this thing, <laughs> right? You could, just, or you could just throw some duct tape on it and see if the car still runs. You know, my, my roommate when I was in college, I kid you not, hit a deer and opposed to going to the, you know, the body shop and getting it fixed, he put some duct tape so it wouldn't, it wouldn't just fall apart while he was driving. If the Saints want to do that with the defense and just duct tape it together so it can keep going, great. That's a way to fix it temporarily. And even if they do that, this defense is going to be better. As we alluded to, the offense is going to be better. And they're averaging 30 points a game. My old saying is, if the defense holds the other team to 21 points or less, a Drew Brees-led team should win the game 9 out of 10 times. Simple as that. I think more than 9 out of 10 times. I mean, Brees, and I think overall, I mean, look, when this team gives up 20 points or gives up, you know, anything in the low 20s, I expect them to win this game just because I feel like the Saints, more often than not, will get to that 30-point marker. I feel like we've seen it over the years, and we've even seen it this year. Yeah, it hasn't been pretty this year, but when you look at the box score at the end of the game, 30 points are put up only one time this year. The Saints haven't put up 30 points, and I think you definitely make a really good point. When you look at this Saints defense, they're not giving up a ton of yards, and you know they're not giving up they're not huge drives. It's these back-breaking plays, the penalties, and again, that stuff that winner loses you games for sure. The red zone efficiency has been awful. I mean, you're basically giving up a touchdown every time the the opposing offense is in the red zone, which is something you have to fix. I mean, when you're a bend-don't-break defense, I know a lot of people don't like that, but that's really helpful, especially when you have a good offense that's scoring over 30 points a game. I feel like, again, it's like all the things that you need to do to win, like the little things that you need to do, the things are just not doing them. And, again, those little things, as much as it's really frustrating, as I think we've been really saying over the last 20 minutes about talking about this defense, they're all very, very fixable, and we're going to see if they can fix it here coming into these last 11 games. And, again, I, I think this this Saints team, it's still Super Bowl or bust. It's still we can do it. It's got to put everything together. So any final thoughts for you, Brendan, before we wrap this one up? I like what you said there, 11 games to go. It's Super Bowl or bust um, just to, to make this thing go full circle. Man, once you're in the dance, anything can happen. I just did a whole documentary on that. You know, once once you go – Anything is possible. Um, and Especially this year. It's a new format. Exactly. Exactly. And like I said, this is a weird year. If you really want to be the optimist here, like really want to be, the first four games of the season could be your quote-unquote preseason games. You're still trying to gel. And for the Saints, if you want, since you know this is the bye week, if you want to take the first three and say that was your preseason, look at what the Saints have done the last two weeks. And I know people say, oh, it's the Lions or it's the Chargers. You saw the graphic. I saw the graphic. We know the stats. The Chargers have been in more one-score ball games than any other team in the league, which tells me they're not that bad of a football team. They're not that bad. They're not that far away. Right, but the Saints, 
are starting to put things together at the right time. All you have to do is make the playoffs. I know a lot of people want to see a fourth consecutive you know, division title, and that would set the record for most consecutive NFC South titles. I know that's a big deal. I still think the Saints can do that. I think 11-5 and five, or 12-4, and four, honestly probably more 11-5, and five, will win you the division. But once you get in, anything's possible. And remember, with this weird COVID thing, you could also have some pretty big names miss games. And I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't wish that upon anybody, but it's a weird year. But what is New Orleans and the Saints, what have they been just all about the last three or four years? Cohesion, great locker room. I know there was some drama that we didn't get to touch on this week with Mike Thomas, but, you know, there's been always a stay-togetherness about this group, and that's what's super important about this year. Right, The team that manages COVID the best is going to win the Super Bowl. And so far, I think the Saints have done pretty well, especially with that scare. And like I said earlier, you're 3-2. and two, You're not a bad football team. You're averaging 30 points a game. Defense figures a couple things out. So you could very well be 4-1. and one. You could very well be 5-0. and oh. And you get a good stretch here. You get Carolina and Chicago, which I both think are very winnable games. Chicago's hard because it's in the cold. It's a, a soldier. And I know Chicago has got a good record, too. But I think those are both really winnable games for the Saints. Um, And if you're able to win those two and find yourself in a situation where you are 5-2, and you're you're in a really good spot for the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to go one step further with that. these next two games. I think the next three games. I think this is going to define the Saints season you have, as you were saying, the Panthers, Bears, and then they play the Bucs. So if you win these three games, you're setting yourself up. First, you sweep the box, which for division impl- implications will be very, very big going down the line. So I feel like you have that. You beat a Bears team on the road in the cold weather. It's going to be probably a very rough-nosed game. It's going to probably run the ball, grind it out. Latavius Murray may very well be a big point of emphasis in that game. And then, you know, you win this game, another division game. You play against Matt Rule. And what those guys are doing, Teddy Bridgewater with the Panthers, they're running kind of similar offense to the Saints. Very interested to see how that all figures out. And I think this this next game is going to be a really good game, and I'm looking forward to it. But these next three games, I think, will define this 2020 Saints team. I think really over the years you've had a three-game stretch to really define a season. And I think these are the three, and we'll see how the Saints do coming out of it. And it should definitely be – a really wild ride here. As it was the first five, I expect nothing less here for these next 11. So I think with all that said, it is time to wrap up the show here. Thank you to Brendan for coming on, taking some time here to talk some Saints, talk some dancing Bulldogs, which, again, congratulations on the documentary. I'll definitely leave the link in the description below. Definitely check all that out. But, Brendan, where can they find you on social media and all that fun stuff? Uh, so social media is easy. It's at BT Boylan. That's B-T-B-O-Y-L-A-N. That's both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, for for the doc, yeah, uh, we'll drop a link below, but it's the the Dancing Bulldogs, and dancing is uh, an apostrophe, no G. Um, check us out on that. Uh, you can find us on Twitter as well. If you find my page uh, at BT Boylan, I'm sure you'll you'll find the documentary. Uh, we're super excited about it. And, of course, follow, uh, follow Saints News Network. It's si.com forward slash NFL forward slash Saints, myself, Kyle T. Mosley, John Hendricks, Bob Rose, Carl Antoine. Um, 
all writing, all doing great work. Uh, Andrew's obviously one of our interns, so uh, we're just we're having a good time with the season. Hopefully, uh, giving you guys the best in uh, Saints coverage that we can. Yeah, I mean, definitely, guys, for sure. Check out Saints News Network. I mean, I've written some articles for them. Brendan does amazing content for them. Bob Rose does. Really, everyone does. They're again to learn from you guys is honestly it's a blessing. It's honestly really great and already. I mean, I've learned so much and. Again, we're just going to keep on riding here for this same season here, and hopefully, you know, the next time we speak, it's going to be more positive, and hopefully we'll be talking playoffs and stuff like that. But thank you to Brendan one more time, and I just want to say thank you guys for listening. Turn it loose, and who dat? <laughs>